0: It's Palm Sunday today. This is the day that we uh, recognize this final week of the life of Jesus on earth. And today is the day that in the timeline of those events, Jesus rides into Jerusalem um, on a donkey to to the praises and the shouts of celebration of the people waving the palm branches, laying them on the road before them. And what are they shouting as he comes into the city? Hosanna, Hosanna, which means rescue us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in reading the account of that last week, it's it's very uh, evident and it's always so striking to me how quickly the hearts of people toward Jesus can change. Um, That today being Palm Sunday as he's coming into the city and people are celebrating and, and praising his name, that just five days after, they will be shouting for his execution. There'll be Those cries of Hosanna quickly turn into cries of crucify him, crucify him. And if we in these series of messages are, are asking God to answer that prayer from the Psalms, search me God and know my heart. Um, it's important that as we enter into this week that we pray that prayer and say, God, as, I, as, as we're, I'm reflecting on, on the events of this week and approaching Good Friday as we observe the, the brutal death and sacrifice of Jesus and then the anticipation of Easter Sunday morning, um, that we really anticipate and look at our own hearts. And so I want us to, to keep that prayer this morning as we look at a very small story. We're going to look at a, a small passage of Scripture this morning But I think in this small story, there's a whole lot. And we're going to kind of read a little bit in between the lines of what's actually in the text. And we're going to consider the the whole story of of the New Testament as we kind of look into the heart of someone that's a very, very small and seemingly insignificant character in the story of the passion of Jesus. But I think um, in this story, it can reveal a lot to us about the state of our own hearts So, I hope that you'll go there with me. Matthew 27, and we're going to read verses 50 through 54, but we're really going to camp out on verse 54 specifically. Uh, But Matthew 27, beginning in verse 50, Matthew writes and says, But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. So, this is the very moment of Jesus' death, his final breath, his final cry of victory as he gives up his spirit and dies. Verse 51, suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city and appeared to many. But look at verse 54, when the centurion... And those with him, who were keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So pray with me this morning. Lord, this this has been our prayer for the past couple of weeks. Lord, search me and know my heart, God. And I pray that we can all earnestly put our minds and our hearts in the midst of that prayer and pray that truthfully as we look into the heart of this Roman guard, this supervisor of men who stood at the foot of your cross. And as we look at at the transformation that was happening in his heart in those hours, God, I pray that you will help us to see the state of our own heart. And let what has happened to him... And what we'll see, help us understand what has or has not happened in our own heart. So we pray for this, for this understanding and for the work of the Holy Spirit now in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, do you know what it's like to hear about someone and then when you finally meet them to not know exactly what you make of them you hear about them you hear about their reputation but then when you finally come face to face with them for the first time you don't really know what to make of them you know what that's like Um, my my friend Robbie Dooley is completely responsible for uh, making the movie Tombstone one of my favorite movies ever I knew nothing about it until he literally made me watch it, and, and then I loved it so much. Um, one of the best Westerns, mo- Western movies ever, and um, my favorite character in Tombstone, without a doubt, is Val Kilmer's Doc Holliday. Uh, he, I, I feel like he makes the movie. Some of y'all are shaking your heads because you've seen it and you agree with me, um, his, his portrayal of Doc Holliday is just impeccable. There's, it couldn't have been better. But there's a scene. There's a particular scene in the movie that's one of my favorites. It's when Doc Holliday comes face-to-face and meets face-to-face for the first time Johnny Ringo. Johnny Ringo is another uh, famous gunsman during that time. But he's an outlaw. And he's part of the group that became known as the Cowboys. And the Cowboys were this band of outlaws that were wreaking havoc there in Tombstone. And so... Um, Doc Holliday is friends with Wyatt Earp Wyatt Earp's coming to town and uh, he, he says he's retired and that's his goal but the cowboys are causing so much trouble that he ends up uh, being, um, being Wyatt Earp and decides we've well, got to do something about this so Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday have this close friendship and they're together in the saloon and, and um, Johnny Ringo comes in and Doc Holliday and he meet face to face for the first time and it's obvious in the movie that they've heard of each other And they know each other's reputation. And there's a particular, in in that scene, I love the dialogue, and I love the way Val Kilmer portrays Doc Holliday. And I actually went back and watched the scene, and I I transcripted it because I wanted to read to you part of the conversation. And and when I told Kim I was going to do this, she said, you're not going to try to talk like him, are you? And... (laughs) I'm really going to try intentionally not to because anytime I quote Val Kilmer from Tombstone, I want to talk in that accent of his because it's just, it's just so good. But I'll, I know I'll butcher it. So I'm just going to read it um, the way the dialogue is from the script. As they come face to face, Doc is there with, uh, with a lady and he looks across the gambling table and he says, you must be Ringo. Look, darling, Johnny Ringo. The deadliest pistolier since Wild Bill, they say. What do you think, darling? Should I hate him? And the woman says, you don't even know him. That's true, but I don't know. There's just something about him. Something around the eyes. I don't know. Reminds me of me. Nope, I'm sure of it. I hate him. One of, the, one, of the, one of the best exchanges, one of the best monologues in the movie. But there's this internal conflict when they're coming face to face for the first time. It's like, should I admire this guy? Should I believe everything that I've heard about him? Or should I hate him? And I wonder if that same kind of internal conversation is going on in the heart of this Roman centurion. This in verse 54 of Matthew 27. He's, this is all that's said about him. And these are the only details that, that Matthew gives us. And you may say, well, that's not a whole lot to go on, but he's mentioned here in Matthew 27. Luke also writes about him in Luke chapter 23. He also mentions the same centurion. And Matthew has to put him in the story for a reason. And I'm always curious about characters like this that I read in the Gospels. And say, God, what is it you want me to learn from this character? So this centurion had the title of centurion. So that would have been a title that was given to an officer in the Roman military. And that title came from a Latin word for 100 so that's where we get the word century is for 100 years. So a centurion would have been a commanding officer that was in charge of 100 men. And that was, his, um, that, was, that was his rank, and it was a significant rank. And so he's obviously encountering Jesus to the point that by the end of verse 54, he's professing Jesus to be the Son of God. But for him to get to that point, he would have had to have gone through a transformation. And so his heart, if we could... What I want us to do is is to sort of, with the the context of the whole story of Scripture, see if we can dissect the heart of this one man. Because it's obvious that this centurion also represents the the hearts of other people. Verse 54 says, When the centurion and those with him... So obviously it, what, what is representative in him is also representative in some of the hearts of the other men who were in his company. How did he get to this point? And so I've sort of identified four stages of transformation. Transformation. If we're wanting to say what's going on in his heart and how can that help me understand what goes on in my heart, in my response to Jesus. I think there are four distinct stages of transformation that we can, we can safely and accurately put this man into as we look at his heart. So I just want to walk through those with you this morning. The first one is an indifferent heart. And this is where everybody begins when it comes to God. There's a point where we have no knowledge or no, uh, no need to understand or, or we're completely oblivious to the fact that, that we need God or who God is. So this soldier would have likely started out with an indifferent heart. This was a man who likely would have either had no faith at all as a Roman soldier or if he did have faith, it would have been a pagan faith that was built on the polygamy, the, 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 um, the polytheism of the Roman culture, that there were lots of gods, hundreds and hundreds of gods to choose from. And so the fact that he likely would have either had no faith or this polytheistic faith would have made us know pretty well that his concern for what this one Jewish rabbi had to say or what this one Jewish rabbi did would have been of little concern to him until he was given the charge to watch over him. And that's what verse 54 says. It says that he and his men were keeping watch over Jesus. So I think in that phrase, they were keeping watch over Jesus, that's like a summary phrase to sort of describe what's happened in this guy's mind and heart over the past 15 hours or so and so if we begin to think about all that Jesus went through in these past 15 hours before this moment of death on the cross 15 16 hours when he when he dies in this moment and we think about what the scriptures say we can kind of walk through where this centurion had been over these past few hours So we could say that he could have, there's a possibility that this centurion would have been in the company of men that came to Gethsemane that night before. When the religious leaders came and they brought the Romans with them to arrest Jesus, it's very likely, it could have been, we don't know for sure, but it could have been that this man was in that company who came to arrest Jesus in the garden. And even if he wasn't in the company and the group who actually came to arrest Jesus, once Jesus was brought into their custody, that would have been the time that he would have been given charge over looking after Jesus. So we could conclude that he would have heard the charges that were brought before Pilate when it came to Jesus. He would have been present. When the Jews were bringing him to Pilate and said, this is what this man is guilty of, we want him crucified. So he would have heard the charges that the Jews brought against him. And if he had heard that, he also would have been present to hear what Pilate had to say about those charges. And what was Pilate's response to the people initially? He's not guilty. There's no reason that I see this man to be any threat to Rome. There's no reason for me to pronounce judgment and execution over him. He's innocent of any wrongdoing. So, it's also likely that he would have been part of that group that Pilate commissioned to appease the crowd because they were so angry. He said, Well, I'll send him and we'll scourge him. We'll punish him. We're not going to kill him. I think it's very likely that the centurion would have been a part of that process. And the scourging of Jesus is something that we've, that we've read about and we've imagined in our minds. If you've ever seen Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, probably the most historically accurate and, and gruesome depiction of what that would have been like. It's very likely that this centurion would have been a part of that. He would have at least observed it because he was given charge to watch over Jesus. Very possibly he could have participated in it. And then after the scourging, we read earlier in Matthew 27 of really the, and we see a picture of the indifference in the heart of these Romans who were were in charge of Jesus. Go back a little earlier in chapter 27 and look at verse 27. It says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. So there's a detail in verse 27. If the centurion was given charge over Jesus and it says that he had an entire company and when, when this moment happened that we're about to read, the whole company was there. So I think sometimes I picture this as like, oh, three or four guys that are, just, that are just having fun with Jesus at Jesus' expense. It says the whole company was there. Verse 28, they stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. And they twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head And placed the staff in his right hand, and they knelt down before him, and mocked him. "Hail, King of the Jews!" And they spit at him, took the staff, and kept hitting him on the head. That that means they didn't just get a couple of whacks in just for fun. They continued over. And over, I imagine with a group that big, everybody wanted to get their shot in. So over and over, they took the staff and they would hit him over the head with it. Verse 31, after they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. So, the centurion and his men would have been the ones to lead Jesus through the city to go to Golgotha. He and his men would have been the ones who actually nailed Jesus to the cross. I think they also probably definitely would have taken notice that of the three criminals, Jesus was the easiest to hang because he didn't fight. He didn't resist. They also would have been the ones who who were at the foot of the cross gambling for his clothes. I mean, they were indifferent to who he was. They didn't care who he was, what he said. And part of the perk of the job was when you conducted an execution like that, you got to take from the prisoner whatever you wanted. Who was going to stop you, right? So they gambled for what little possessions he had. Not knowing that they were fulfilling Scripture as they did that, he and his men would have would have heard the conversation between Jesus and the other two men that were hanging on either side of him. He would have heard the mockery of the one. He would have heard the the cries for mercy from the other. He would have heard Jesus tell the one, today you'll be with me in paradise. But in the midst of all that, they were the ones who would have joked and jeered with one another. This was, this was very normal for them. When we read this account and what was going on, we're, we're horrified by this, as we should be. But you understand, these are men that did this on a regular basis. Hundreds of times. Completely desensitized to the gore and the brutality of it. And I think maybe very early at the beginning of this, their heart toward Jesus would have been very indifferent. No concern at all for who he was or what he said. But then I think his heart would have had to have transformed into another stage from being, from being indifferent to being observant. An observant heart. See, it's because the Gospels are written from the account of believers, most, most of the time when we read it, we, it's easier for us to imagine those events through the eyes of a believer. But what's more difficult maybe is for us to read it and look at it through the eyes of the people who didn't believe in that moment and so the second one is an observant heart even though he was he would have been completely desensitized to what was happening and started out being completely indifferent there were some things that he would have noticed obviously that was different about Jesus there's there's no way he would have done dozens maybe maybe even hundreds of these executions before but there were some strikingly different couple of other specific things that are even a little deeper that that his heart would have had to have noticed first is that he knew that this man was no threat to Rome like he would have he would have been very sure that that this this is Jesus that we're crucifying, he probably wondered in his mind, what's the big deal about this guy? And why are we even crucifying him? Because it's, it's very obvious that he is no threat to, to us. He's no threat to Rome. He's no threat to Caesar. Pilate had already said that he, he was innocent, and Pilate is going to be very thorough. Anybody that's coming for Pilate's authority, Pilate is going to stop them. So for Pilate to say, this man hasn't done anything wrong, he had to have noticed that he knew that Jesus was no military threat because he didn't even fight back. He never resisted. He was no political threat. And he also probably noticed that Jesus didn't have any band of followers that were that were trying to rescue him either. Anybody who was this important, that was that that big of a deal among the Jews, you would expect when the Romans were going to crucify him. It, even though the Jews were the ones calling for his, his execution, there would have been at least a small band of like rebels who were with him who would have been trying to fight to, to save him or rescue him from this. But Jesus didn't have any of that. He barely had a handful of just a few people who were there with him. And the ones who, had, who were associated with him, most of the guys who followed him all of this time, they had run for the hills already. So he would have observed all of that. And he would have known that he's no threat to Rome, but he also, in seeing that Jesus wasn't a threat to Rome, he also would have seen that he was a huge threat to the Jews. Because that was the end. Why are we crucifying him? He's not a threat to Rome, but he sure is a threat to all of these Jews. In his mind, Jesus was probably no more than just somebody who said the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong people. And it got him in hot water. And you you know, you you've seen that before, haven't you? You've seen somebody maybe. In, in a platform or in a conversation with people, they say something in the midst of, and you and you're thinking, "Oh boy, you shouldn't have said that. That's going to get you in big trouble." <laughs> and then you see something just escalate and escalate because somebody's just completely unaware. He probably looked at Jesus that way, like, "With the very least, this guy's just dumb." What did he What did he say to make these Jews so angry? He could see the Jews hate for him. And, and the Romans were very familiar with the Jews. They didn't believe the same things that the Jews believed religiously, but they saw how the Jews were, and they would have dealt with them on a regular basis. And I'm sure that this centurion probably thought, man, I have never seen, I've seen the Jews hate people. I've seen the way the Jews hate us. But even the way the Jews hate us doesn't compare to the kind of hate I see them putting out on this man. Why is that? The Romans had no other king other than Caesar. And if they were religious at all, it, it would have confused them at the least to think why why is this why is this even happening why is he so different so they go from he his heart goes from being completely indifferent to observing taking in information about Jesus noting the differences but then there's another point that it moves from he, his heart would have moved from observing to considering. And here's what I mean by that. You may say, well, considering, how, how is considering different from observing? Observing is just taking in information, right? Taking note of what's different. But considering goes deeper. Considering is, it happened in that first moment when that, that officer began to think, taking all the things that he's observed about Jesus and considering not just why are these things happening, but what do these things mean? And personally, considering not just what do they mean for him and what do they mean for the, everybody else, there had to have been a moment of considering what, like, what does this mean for me? Does this mean anything for me? How how should I respond to what I'm observing? And I think that move to considering happened very, very quickly. Because if we go back to verse 54, it says, When the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened they were terrified. So there's the moment. You're like, well, when did he go from observing to considering? It, it, it's right there in verse 54. They were keeping watch over Jesus. They were observing Jesus. They were observing the, the situation. But then when they observed the earthquake and the fact that the rocks were splitting in two and that in the middle of the day, the highest point of the sun when when the sun should have been the brightest it became dark like night those are supernatural things and they began to notice stuff that was not normal that obviously weren't couldn't 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 have been explained explained by human means these were hardened men these were tough men But the changes, not just in what they were observing, but now all of a sudden they were observing something that they couldn't ignore. And it frightened them. It made them scared. Because I believe that in that moment they understood there was a greater reality than just what they were seeing. Observing is all about what you can see, but then you have to consider the things that you can't see. And so they understood, based on all these things that we see, there's another reality. There's something else going on that we haven't seen. And what is that? And what does it mean? So that's when he started to consider in his heart... What does this mean? Not just what does this mean for, for everybody else or what does this mean about him? What does this mean about the God that he claims to, to, to be the son of or, or, or the, the king that was sent by him? But what does this mean for me? They were afraid. And that's, that's, that phase of considering happens in every person's heart that, that comes to faith in Christ. We hear the gospel. We hear what the Bible says about Jesus. We hear the testimony of other people about who Jesus is. But before we come to faith, there's a moment where we seriously begin to consider, what does this mean for me? What do I do with this information? What do I do with what I've seen? It it means something more. What does it mean for me? And so... His heart would have moved from being indifferent, not concerned at all, to just paying attention, to then considering what does this mean for me, the greater reality that I can't observe? And then it ends with his confession, which leads to number four. He ended with a convinced heart. He was convinced and he said, truly, this man was the son of God at the end of verse 54. So why does Matthew give us this little detail about this man? This is one verse, one man in the midst of this story. Why does Matthew even put this in here? I think he includes this in his gospel to show the contrast between the Jews who were supposed to be the people of God, and the Romans who were supposed to be the enemies of God. And yet the the ones who were supposed to be the pursuers of God were the ones that didn't understand. They observed and they considered and they came to the wrong conclusion. But here's this Roman centurion who's not supposed to be able to to perceive the things that the Jews perceive, Not supposed to be able to understand and even believe the things that the Jews believe, but yet in this moment, we see the proclamation of a truth and a faith in his heart that the Jews never got to. They never became convinced. And so what that tells me about the gospel, I think Matthew puts that in his story to say that the gospel is for everyone. It's for everybody, and it's even for the ones who literally killed Jesus because that's who this man was. It's it's very not out of the realm of possibility for us to think that this man may have been the one to actually put the nails into Jesus' hands and feet. But yet at the foot of the cross, in this moment when he dies, he, he, comes, he goes through this process of transformation in these steps through his heart and he ends up convinced of something that not even the Jews were convinced of. So we see the Jews at the beginning, Palm Sunday today, celebrating who they thought Jesus was going to be and then, now in this moment, completely rejecting him. But yet at the same time, we see this Roman centurion indifferent, not concerned with Jesus at all, except to do his job. And by the end of his encounter with Jesus, he is a professing believer in the divinity of Jesus. The fact that he was the Son of God. So there's a there's a definite contrast there. So this morning. What I I want to challenge us to do is something very simple. Look at that list. All of us are somewhere in that process. All of us. I believe that every person, every person's in one of those stages of responding to Jesus. There's the indifferent heart toward Jesus, completely unconcerned and apathetic. See no need to even inquire about Jesus. Not even aware that Jesus is relevant to them at all. It, could, it, it There could definitely be indifferent people who are here this morning. Maybe you, you're just here because somebody wanted you to be here. You really don't care. You really don't have any desire or need to know anything about Jesus. You're just, you're just here. But maybe if you are here, at the very least, you might be that observant heart. Not completely indifferent. Your eyes are opened up enough to, to listen and to hear. You've heard the story of the gospel. You've heard what Jesus has done for you. You've heard it preached. You've heard people share their testimony before. You've heard all of that about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven and we could go to heaven. You've heard all those things, but you've, but you've not moved into considering what that means for you yet. You're just kind of collecting the information. And that could be that could be our heart. But then there's the considering heart. That's the person who's taking the information that they see and beginning to think about the deeper parts of that. What are the implications of that? What if this is true? What if all of these stories about Jesus and who Jesus claims to be and what Jesus claims to offer, what if that's true? And what does that mean for me if it is true? Could I really be forgiven by God? Is it possible that when Jesus prayed that prayer on the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing? Could that prayer apply to me? I think that's the considering phase. And then lastly is the is to be convinced. There are many people in this room now who would say, yes, my heart is convinced of who Jesus is. He's the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lamb, the Roaring Lion, come to save and to rescue me. And I've given my life to Him by faith. But there's something that has to happen to get us from number 3 to number 4. and that's a work that you can't do by yourself. It's a work that I can't do. If there was a a magic thing or if there was a if if there was something I could help you understand logically about Jesus that would move you from considering to being convinced and trusting him as your lord and savior, then We would talk about that every time we were together. Like we would just say, okay, if you're not convinced, here's what I can tell you, and this is the only thing that will convince you. I would just preach that every Sunday, hoping that somebody would be convinced and that they would respond. The problem is I can't convince you of anything. I can't move your heart from considering to convinced. That is only something God can do. That is only a work of the Holy Spirit. I don't stand convinced of Jesus' identity before you. I I don't stand up here to tell you that I'm convinced that he's Lord and Savior of all and that he's my Lord and Savior unless the Holy Spirit's convinced me of that. And that happens in a moment. There's a definite, just like in this centurion, there was a moment when he went from considering to being convinced. There was a moment in my life when I heard the stories And I was considering what does that mean for me. And then when that considering of my heart, my openness to what God is trying to say and what that means for me. And when the Holy Spirit comes and in that moment intersects my my heart being open to him and the Holy Spirit giving me the faith to be able to believe and, and to be convinced. Then that's when that transformation happens. Those two things come together. And nothing's ever the same from that point. That moment might be right now for you. As much as I know that every heart of every person we could put into one of these four categories, I'm also convinced that every Sunday when we gather together as a church, all four of these hearts are sitting in this room. All four. Just because you're at church doesn't mean you're convinced. You may be considering and if so, this is absolutely where I want you to be. You may just be observing. You may just be taking it in. You're not really considering so much what it means for you. But you're here and since you're here, you're paying attention. And as I said before, you may be here and be completely indifferent. You're only here to keep somebody else from nagging you. You're only here because, and you may only show up to church next week, as far as you're concerned, because it's Easter, and that's just what you're supposed to do, and you want to make your mom or your grandma happy, so you're going to come to church. Everybody's somewhere right here. So just think about this morning. Where am I? Which one of these best describes my heart right now? Um, I'm convinced. And I, I think about that scene from Tombstone again when Doc Holliday, he comes to a conclusion about Johnny Ringo and what was his conclusion? Yeah, I hate him. <laughs> I'm sure of it. I hate him. I'm sure of it. I love him. I'm sure of it. He is... God I'm sure of it he is my Lord I'm sure of it he is my rescuer he is my savior and I'm sure of it because the Holy Spirit convinced me that it's true and I think about why I love Jesus and why I don't hate Jesus and it kind of comes down to this I think I love Jesus because in his humanity, he's just like me. But then I also love Jesus, because even more, he's absolutely nothing like me. Don't you love that about Jesus? He's just like you, but he's absolutely nothing like you. (laughs) And the fact that he is absolutely nothing like me means that he's the only one that can save me. He's the only one that can rescue me.